Well, I'll turn, if you would, again to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews, uh, chapter 1. And verse 13. Hebrews, chapter 1, and verse 13. Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And let us pray. Father, thank you for all of Holy Scripture. We think that it's all inspired, it's all true. And I, I pray this morning for the help of your blessed Holy Spirit to bring out the sense of this verse and related texts of Scripture in in such a way that you would be exalted, you would be glorified, and in such a way that um, the hearts of your people would be encouraged and edified and and built up in the most holy faith that's once delivered to the saints. And and might we glory as we celebrate the Lord's table this day and, and consider all that you have done for us through your precious Son. So we just commit this time to thee, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we conclude our, our studies in the, in the first chapter of Hebrews, looking especially at, first, excuse me, at verse 13. Um, it contains the seventh quotation from the Old Testament, verses 5 through 14, the seventh quotation. And they all support this uh, overall theme of the superiority of the person of Christ over angels. Um, the, the language of the, the first quotation in verse 5, you may have noticed this, of the first quotation in verse 5 and the last, and the, 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 the quotation in verse 13 um, are almost the same, and they, they serve as, uh, as brackets or bookends to kind of set this section apart. What I mean is verse 5 begins with the question, for to which of the angels did he ever say... And then, then verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said? So the first and last quotations are, are set, aside, set aside here. The, um, the commentators call this an inclusio. Uh, it's the idea of a word or a phrase that serve as a, as a bookend to kind of frame or set aside a particular section. And that's what we have here, this, these seven quotations from the Old Testament. And you notice also these are both uh, questions that... Um, are looking for a negative reply or a negative answer. The question in verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And the implied answer is to none. He never said that to any angel. And again in verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And again, none. He never, he never said that to any angel. He never invited an angel to the place of authority at his right hand. Well, and then with respect to verse 13 itself, we notice there's, there's repetition of thought here um, this, with this particular quote. Our minds have already been drawn to this great redemptive reality of Christ being exalted to the right hand of God the Father. We saw that in verse 3, the end of verse 3. He made purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then the, the term begotten in verse 5, today I have begotten you. And the, the term anointed in verse 9, therefore God, your God has anointed you. I understand of those, those uh, also 
referring to the exaltation of the person of Christ, making the same point in different ways. So there's repetition in this verse of the enthronement of the person of Christ, but there's also an intensification as to uh, the importance of this great redemptive reality. And this is brought out in two ways. Its importance is brought out in two ways. Number one is simply the force of the language here. In verse 3, we're told that he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. This helps us to understand why he did so. God told him to sit down at his right hand. And the reason that God told him to sit down at his right hand was because of his the success of his work on the cross. He made purification of sins. Then he sat down at the right hand of God. So it's a place of honor and exaltation. It's based upon the success of his work on the cross. And its importance also, that is the exaltation, its importance also is brought out by the the source of the quote. It's from Psalm 110 and verse 1, which is the most quoted or most cited Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110.1 is quoted more than any other any other verse any, any other verse in the uh, in the New Testament. If you put it in the form of a question, what Old Testament verse is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other? The answer is Psalm 110 and verse one. We have reference to it in verse three, um, and then, then it's also in our text. It's found in Hebrews chapter eight and verse one. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. It's found again in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. But he, uh, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So in light of this, this theme of the superiority of the person of Christ over angels and, and his exaltation, uh, this morning I want you to look at two features of his ministry, and I think this is especially helpful in preparing our minds for the observing of the Lord's table. So two features from this text of our Lord's ministry. And, and the first one is the incomparable dignity of the Son, the incomparable honor or dignity of the Son. F.F. Bruce, a helpful commentator, wrote like the the first of these seven quotations, the first one being, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. It refers to the king's enthronement and carries with it the promise of victory over all his enemies. Now under this first uh, heading, to further uh, appreciate the import of the enthronement of our Lord to God's right hand, I, I thought what I would do is let me give you five other instances of the New Testament where Psalm 110 and verse 1 is made reference to. So that's kind of how I want to develop our thinking under this first heading. Five other references where Psalm 110 and verse 1 is noted. And the first one, if you'd like to turn there, is in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20. This is in the context of a prayer which the Apostle Paul prays uh, for these people. I'm going to begin in verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 1. And Paul begins by saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And then he says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the reference to Psalm, that's the reference to Psalm 110 verse 1. He raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So what you notice here is there's these 
particular petitions that he's praying for the people. He, he wants their hearts to be enlightened. And the first petition is, so that you may know what, what is the hope of his calling. Then number two, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Number three, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And, and we know these are the right kinds of things to pray for other people because they're inscripturated. So th- this is the right kind of thing to pray for yourself and to others. But we have confidence here that he will answer these prayers because they are in accordance or presented in accordance with the power that was displayed to raise the son from the dead and seat him at God's right hand. So all I'm really saying here is the exaltation of Christ and the power needed to effect it is connected with these particular petitions. So it gives us confidence if we pray these particular requests for ourselves or for others, God has the power and you will be inclined to answer these particular kinds of prayers. Well then, uh, secondly, the exaltation is a reality um, that reminds us of, um, uh, of the great assistance in making Christ the object of our affections. The exaltation of Christ to the right hand of God, it's, it's of great assistance in, in making the person of Christ the chief object of our affections. Now there's a verse you may have memorized, 1 Peter 1.8 says, Whom having not seen you love, in whom though now you see him not yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. It, it's, it's a marvelous text, and I, I, I presume that when you read a text like that, you, you think, this is what I should be doing. I, I should be rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory in light of the connection I have with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the text that Jonathan Edwards is work on the religious affections. It's based on this particular text. So a verse like this, at least from my own perspective, it's glorious on the one hand, but it's humbling on the other hand, uh, because it's so easy to have the affections that should be directed to him take take a detour and become entangled in the vanity, the the vain things of this world. So I, I would submit to you that a text which champions our Lord's exaltation is a great help in making Christ the chief object of our affections. What I'm thinking of is Colossians 3.1. This is another reference to Psalm 110.1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things above where Christ sitteth at the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. So we're enabled by the Holy Spirit. We're assisted by the Holy Spirit to set our affection on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and to rejoice in the person of Christ. Well, then thirdly, uh, this reality and this activity on the part of God helps us to understand the, the great evil of those who crucified the person of Christ. It helps us to put in pers- perspective, I think, the great and terrible evil of what it was to crucify the person of Christ. Now, listen to these words. This is the conclusion of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. He says, It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for thy feet. Psalm 110 and verse 1. Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is, the one who God glorified, they crucified. And their guilt was aggravated because his exaltation of the Son made it clear he was both Lord and Christ. So the one that God 
God honored is the one that they dishonored by crucifying him. Now, their response to this in verse 37 was, Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? So there was this, there was a sense in their soul of desperation, like, what have we done? And the good news here is this desperation was used to cause repentance and faith, and they turned to Christ as their, their Savior. Well, then in the fourth place, uh, the current enthronement of Christ it's the assurance of our Lord's full participation in future judgment. That the current enthronement of Christ at God's right hand, that is the absolute assurance of his participation in, in future judgment. You might want to turn here to Mark 14, verses 61 and 62. And I'm going to read these in, in just a moment. This is um, on the morning of our Lord's crucifixion. Um, he's before the Sanhedrin. And um, so it's early on Friday morning. In uh, verse 62, which I'll read in a moment, it's a combination of Daniel 7.13 and Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, Daniel 7.13 reads, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And then Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Now, if you would notice Mark 14, 61, in verses 62, but he, Jesus, kept silent. He made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power. That's a reference to Psalm 110.1. And coming with the clouds of heaven, a reference to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. I am and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. William Lane wrote, Jesus thus spoke without reserve on his exaltation and coming as the eschatological judge, the end time judge. The day will come, he affirms, when those who now judge him will see him with unmistakable clarity enthroned at God's side, invested with power and majesty and assigned the task of judge. So it ensures his full participation in future judgment. His current exaltation ensures his full participation in future judgment. Uh, he will be seen clearly by all. Well, then in the fifth place under this heading, for believers in Christ, because our, our Lord's current intercessory work is in conjunction with his exalted status, we are assured of no condemnation. Because of our Lord's ongoing intercessory work, it's connected with his current enthronement at the right hand of the majesty on high. Therefore, we are assured of no condemnation. Listen to these words from Romans 8 and verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. So his, his exaltation at God's right hand is tied to his, his ongoing intercession for us. As Charles Hodge wrote, this, is, this expresses his universal dominion. Um, from these and other passages and their connection, it's evident that Christ is exalted to universal dominion. All power in heaven and earth is given into his hands. If this is the case, how great the security it affords the believer. He who is engaged to effect his salvation is the director of all events and all worlds. And then especially making intercession for us, he writes, 
It presents those considerations. He presents these considerations which secure for us pardon and the continued supply of the divine grace. He intends to save those who put their trust in him and therefore in their behalf he presents before God the merit of his mediatorial work and urges their salvation as a reward promised him in the covenant of redemption. So this is ongoing work at the right hand of the majesty on high. It assures our souls of no condemnation because he, he continually brings before God not your works or my works or not our inherent goodness. That's not it. Well, what he does is continue to bring the mediatorial work of the person of Christ, everything that he accomplished on the, Christ, on the cross in our stead. Uh, Hebrews 9.24 sounds this note of exclusivity and and I think a very precious way. It says, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. That's what he's doing. He's appearing in the presence of God for us. And he pleads the merit of his mediatorial work on our behalf. And that's the, the basis of no condemnation. So in the first place, this emphasis on the incomparable dignity of the Son and then secondly, the assured victory of the Son. The assured victory of the Son. Moving on to second part of the verse. Until I make thine enemies a footstool. Now, that could suggest that there will come an end to the rule of Christ or an end to the reign of Christ. And such is not the case. Uh, William Hughes, let me quote, I think is helpful in this respect. He says, the qualifying clause which the, the psalmist adds in the quotation now before us, namely, till I make thy enemies a stool for thy feet should not be taken to mean that the kingship of Christ is something of no more than a temporary duration, as though setting a limitation beyond which his reign will not continue. What this clause does assert is that though he already he is already exalted, there are still hostile forces to be brought into subjection. And further, that the triumph of his dominion will prove to be complete. And as another puts it, however emphasis falls on the son's present exalted session and rule, he awaits the complete subjection and judgment of his enemies. It really fits in with what Hebrews 10 uh, verses 12 and 13 say. Having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And one other older commentator I thought was helpful. The mediatorial authority of Christ extends to the whole created universe. Good and bad angels are under his control. The righteous and the wicked in this world are the subject of his government. He's been made head over all things to the church, thrones and dominions, principalities and powers are subject to him. Nothing can withstand the, the scepter which he wields. His rule is resistless. Christ, the mediatorial king, is invested with boundless power. All his enemies shall be laid prostrate before him. His cause may be opposed in the world. The kings of the earth may set themselves and princes combine against him. And their efforts may sometimes seem on the point of prevailing. But the gospel is designed, destined to enjoy a complete and lasting victory. The friends of Christ shall all be conducted to glory. And his enemies shall be involved in irremediable ruin. So the text, um, you might have noticed, does not specify who the enemies are. As one put it, uh, more broadly speaking, Christ's enemies are any who oppose his rule, including all those who turn from him in unbelief, which the book of Hebrews especially deals with. So what I want to do under this, the second heading 
is offer to your thinking what some of these enemies are. And I'm getting some help in terms of category of thought from John Owen's work here. But what some of these enemies are, and I've got three subheadings under this second main heading here. It has to do with these enemies and, and they, who they are. So the first one is an identification or clarification of who these enemies are. What, what are we talking about here? Well, I, I think one obviously would be Satan. Um, it's brought out clearly in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, um, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, um, prowls about seeking someone whom he may devour. He's called an adversary. He's referred to as an adversary. That, that's a hostile enemy. Owen says, Satan is the sworn enemy of Christ, the adversary that openly, constantly, avowedly opposeth him in his throne. And Owen points out that he, he exerts this enmity in, in various ways. One is temptation. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Uh, he exerts this enemy by accusations. He's the great accuser. Revelation 12.10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been, has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God night and day. And then also by persecution, by temptation, by accusations, and by persecution. Revelation 2.10 says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will be, you have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And we could add to that, he's the great deceiver. We could add to that, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, which is the glory of Christ. So Satan is the enemy of the kingdom. He's an enemy of Christ. He's an enemy of the gospel. Secondly is the world. Uh, the world, Owen writes, is a professed enemy of the kingdom of Christ. And Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And James chapter 2, and excuse me, James 4 and verse 4 makes it very clear. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Another enemy is, is death, and this may be one of the first ones that came to your mind. Um, it's clearly brought out this way in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Um, and Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15 bring out that um, men and women, unsaved men and women, are kept in bondage to death all of their life. It's an unavoidable reality. So they're kept in a kind of bondage to death all of their lives. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. A fourth enemy would be sin and or sinners. Owen says sin is universally, excuse me, sin is universally and in its whole nature an enemy unto Christ. Uh, to be a sinner is to be an enemy of God and an enemy of Christ. Um, Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And two verses later, it says in Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So to be a sinner is to be an enemy of God. Colossians 1.21 says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's, that's the condition of all unsaved people. I, I, I think you have to process this one yourself. I think there's a tendency to think of unsaved people as residing in the ground of neutrality. 
They're, they're objective about all this? They are not. Not according to Scripture. They are, they, are, they are enemies of the Most High God. Well, a fifth kind of enemy is those who identify as Christians but do not exhibit a life of moral and spiritual transformation. A fifth kind of enemy is those who say that they're a Christian, but they don't display a life of moral and spiritual transformation. Now, I want to be careful here. I realize that none of us is perfect, and we don't reach moral perfection in this life. I do understand that. But the gospel is very clear. It does change a person's moral and spiritually. Otherwise, what good is the gospel, right? I mean, what good is a gospel that leaves men and women in their sins? It does not do that. So I'm articulating here, those are enemies of the gospel. It's not doctrinal deviation, but it's moral and spiritual deviation because it misrepresents what the true gospel does to a lost soul. And it lessens its attractiveness to somebody that's under the conviction of sin and they want to be delivered from that. Now, now here's a text that is very helpful. I'm just going to read to you five verses from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. The last days between the first and second coming of Christ. What's going to make these times so difficult? What's going to make them so hard? It's the moral and spiritual characteristics of the people that are living in those times. Paul goes on to say, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Then he says this, holding to a form of godliness, Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Holding to a form of godliness indicates that these are those who profess faith in Christ. But Paul says they've denied its power. And, and that is, they've denied its power to change their life morally and spiritually. And, and he says, when you see somebody like this, what do you do? You avoid them. You stay away from them, which suggests this is a contagious spiritual malady. So when you see someone, and again, I'm not arguing for perfection, but someone who professes Christ as Savior but lives completely like the world, what do you do? You, you flee from that kind of a person. You don't associate because that's not good for the soul. Well, then a sixth kind of enemy is those who have overtly left the faith. Those who have overtly left the faith. Hebrews deals with this. These are not those who profess Christ as Savior. They are, they are those who used to profess Christ as Savior, but they don't anymore. In our days, the word, the, the, the word that is used is deconversion or deconstruction. You may have read articles about that or seen it. It's a great tragedy um, because someone who's been in the Christian faith for a long time, and then they leave it, and they, they say, I'm not a Christian anymore. In fact, I was reading recently about a really well-known pastor who did this. He was um, very influential, and then he got to a point where he said he's no longer a Christian. And I can imagine how frustrating it would be to witness to somebody like that. Because everything you say, I've been there and done that. If you talk about redemption, if you talk about heaven, if you talk about hell, it's like he's preached on it. You know? So it's hard to witness to a person like that. It's right to witness to a person like that. But those are some of the kinds of enemies that are, that are still those hostile forces that still exist. Now, do not despair. Second um, subheading here. Our actual union with Christ in this world and the truths of God's word, God's word will assist us in successfully opposing such adversaries in this world. Although Satan does prowl about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, he does. We, we nevertheless, we can put on the full armor of God. We can put on the shield of faith. We can wield the sword of the spirit. We know that he that is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Although the allurements of the world are real, they are, um, 
And, and they will not end during our earthly pilgrimage. We do have the assurance of victory as regenerate believers because 1 John 5, 4 says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And although sin is a powerful enemy, and it is, the very nature of conversion, true conversion, promises real, actual victory over the ruling, reigning power of sin. Romans 6, 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. So the power of sin is broken by the superior power of the resurrection that's applied to the soul of anyone who's converted and anyone who, who comes to Christ. And with respect to those who have left the faith, that's also, of course, that's a sad story. And Hebrews deals with that. But the Bible, it really reveals to our minds how we should think about that, in 1 John 2.18, it says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. I mean, this is really pretty basic. Um, that They were never regenerated. They were never born again. They were never a new creature in Christ. The, 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 the reason they took the exit was to show that they were never a part of the true people of God. And with respect to uh, physical death, which keeps people in fear all their lives, obviously, as Christians, we still die, we still grieve, Jesus wept, but, but the whole vantage point of a Christian is, is changed. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. So when a, when a Christian dies, when, when a believer dies, they're home. They're, they're out of this whole mess, and they're in a place where there's no more sin, no more crying, no more pain. And it's a glorious thing. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And Psalm 116, 15 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And then the third and final subheading under this second main heading, it brings out a little bit more of the force of the text. When our Lord returns, all of these and any other enemies will be fully subjugated to him forever. When he returns, all these enemies will be fully subjugated to him forever. We read about the devil's final demise in Revelation 20.10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And, and Jesus spoke of, of those who reject him in this world. He said, Whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. He says more in Mark 8, 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And the final word with respect to death for believers, it's life in its fullest sense. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. And let us pray, shall we?
Father, I pray that you might take what we have considered this morning and, and apply it to our hearts and, and souls, might our, our, our trust in your precious and holy, exalted Son uh, increase. Uh, might we increase in our own love for him. And as we would redirect our minds towards the observing of the Lord's table, I pray that you would use these thoughts as a, a precious preparation of appreciation for all that you have done for us in your son. So continue to bless our time together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.